Good morning. Let's, uh, let's pray as we approach God's word this morning. Father, we, uh, we do rejoice that in all things you, um, you are at work to accomplish your purposes in us, and, and we ask that you would use each and every season, each opportunity to mold us increasingly into the image of your Son. And God, we ask that as we approach your word this morning, that your Spirit would use this text right now to do just that. That as we expose ourselves to your word, that you would use it to shine a light on our lives, that we might increasingly live our lives in light of the cross and the resurrection. We say thank you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning again. It is, uh, it is great to, to be with you this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to spend a, a week in the Old Testament before we jump back into the New Testament, continuing our series on the book of Mark. Uh, if you have a Bible, I hope you do, um, because we're going to be working through a lot of, of, uh, of passages this morning. Um, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 55, and, and having God's Word in front of you is going to be really important, whether it's, it's in paper or, or, or on your phone. Um, as we work our way through this passage this morning. So I uh, invite you to open up to Isaiah 55. Isaiah, is a, uh, Isaiah 55 is a really powerful passel, or passage that is, that is plain and simple. It's, it's the foundation of the Christian faith. In essence, it's really the message of the gospel. Even though it was written 700 years before the events of the gospel, before the events of the crucifixion and resurrection, Isaiah gives us a picture of the gospel here in Isaiah chapter 55. It tells us of the character of God, and it tells us of the, like, the utter surety uh, of his promise of salvation for anyone who would draw near to him. And that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. As we do so, I, I want to just paint a picture of Isaiah 55. The book of Isaiah as a whole is really concerned with, with two truths. The first one is this, that no matter how tumultuous uh, your circumstances may be, and for the people of Israel, as Isaiah is writing, they are very, very tumultuous circumstances. It is a reminder to us that God is still God and that he is still seated on his throne. Even when the, the circumstances, the events of our life, they, they appear to be a contradiction to the reality that God is seated on his throne, God remains in charge. That's the first truth that Isaiah tries to, to bring home over and over and over again. The second one is this, that God remains entirely trustworthy. That God is worthy of our trust, that he will keep his promises, just as his lordship is not in question when life seems to be going awry. The same is true of his trustworthiness. You can still trust God when your life is falling down all around you. And in Isaiah 55, God takes these truths, the, the truth of his lordship and the truth of his, his trustworthiness, and it applies it specifically to the problem of our own sinfulness. Here's the reality that Isaiah helps us to, to realize in our lives. Even if it seems like your life is in shambles, the reality is your circumstances are not the greatest problem that is facing you. The greatest problem that is facing each and every one of us is the impassable gap between us and God himself. And that's what the Bible calls sin. It's a familiar term if you've been in the church uh, before, that God is Lord and, and he remains seated on his throne. He's in charge. All of humanity has opted to remove God from the throne of their lives and to take that seat for themselves. We call this selfishness or, or idolatry or sin. Every one of us, 
does this each and every day when we choose to submit all of our lives or even just a portion of our lives to our lordship rather than the lordship of God alone. And because God is a sovereign Lord, he's not going to tolerate any rebellion. And let's be honest, let's just use the word treason against his rule. And that is something that each and every one of us is guilty of. And yet, at the exact same time that that is true, God's trustworthiness also remains true. We see in the Bible that God has promised that he will create a people for his own possession. That even in the midst of all of this sinfulness, even in the midst of all of this rebellion and treason against his rule, God will take people and make them his own. His own people. And all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, moments after the first rebellion in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, when we see they rebel against God's good, holy rule, God promises that he will one day fix his creation. His creation that has gone askew, that is, has gone off of its axis. Now, how do we reconcile these two equal truths that really, if we're honest, they, they seem like they're in, they're in opposition? Isaiah gives us the answer. Starting in Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah declares that good news is coming. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they, live up, they lift up their voice, and together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. God sends out messengers across the, the mountains and, and to all the peoples to, to share of, of this good news that somehow, some way, God has made a way for sinful people to enter into his presence once more. And God says that it is time for us to join our voices together with joy because of this incredible news. But of course, the question is how? How is it that God did this? How can God simultaneously, simultaneously remain sovereign Lord over his creation, not tol tolerating rebellion against his rule, while also remaining completely trustworthy, completely trustworthy of keeping his promises? And the next chapter, Isaiah 53, tells us that, that, that God is going to send a servant who will make a way. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We, turned, we have turned each one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Isaiah 53 tells us that although all of humanity has gone astray, God's chosen servant will not go astray. He will remain completely faithworthy and trustworthy to his father, to God. God uh, astoundingly says that this servant will bear the punishment for the rebellion of all of the rest of humanity. Again, from Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Isaiah 53 tells us that God has made a way back to him through the work of his servant. 
Now, God remains fully Lord and, and completely keeps his promises at the exact same time because of the work of the servants. And that way, those who are separated from God can now dwell in God's presence once again. But here's perhaps the most astounding news of all. Isaiah 53, part of it that we didn't read, Isaiah 53 talks about the reward, the, the joy of the servants, the one who has been completely faithful to God, the reward that he will receive. It doesn't belong to you and to me. It tells us in Isaiah 54 that this reward is shared freely, that it is given to people like you and me who do not deserve it, and because God is, is completely trustworthy and he is not fickle, he will not change his mind. And this is really good news because when you are having a particularly bad day, when you are a jerk to your spouse or your coworkers or your children or your parents, after you do something that is so embarrassing that the very thought of it, uh, of someone else knowing that you might have done that, it turns your stomach and makes you sick, God sees those things, but he never says, you know what, after all I've done for you, that's how you treat me? That's how you respond to me? Forget it. Just forget it. The, the offer has been rescinded. It's no longer on the table. Maybe if you shape up, I'll change my mind. But until then, good riddance. No, God never says that. Consider the, the unconditional promise of Isaiah 54. For the mountains may depart, and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that's, that's an incredibly important word for me. There is a reason why the enemy of our souls is called Satan. The Hebrew word Satan, uh, Satan is, is a Hebrew word and it simply means accuser. And that is because he accuses us before the Father. And my heart does a pretty good job of accusing me as well when I fall. You see, our world is, is so transactional. Like, if I do this, then I will receive that, both good and bad. If I do something good, I will receive something good. If I do something bad, I will receive something bad. This idea is so deeply ingrained in us. But the promises, as good as they may be, they, they are conditional. But Isaiah 54 shares earth-shaking good news. You see, Isaiah has been building up to this moment, even in the brokenness of our sin, God has declared that salvation is available, Isaiah 52. He explains what that salvation or how that salvation comes to be through the work of his servant in Isaiah 53. And then he says that because the servant is so powerful, so faithful, because his work is so efficacious, that nothing that we do can ever change the work, Verse 50, or chapter 54. But how do we make this gift from God our own? And that's the message of Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, the entire chapter, is, is basically just one long invitation to come. 
come and, and enjoy and experience everything that's been described in Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54. It's a, a, this charge to, to experience the good news and the joy of, of Isaiah 52. It is to experience the pardon that is offered to us in Isaiah 53. It is to experience the irro, ir, irrevocable acceptance of Isaiah 54. And here's the message of Isaiah 55. The answer to the question, how? How do we experience all this goodness? It's simply this. Come and experience the goodness of God. That's it. How do we experience? Well, we just come. Come and experience the goodness of God. That's the message of Isaiah 55. It doesn't matter where you are this morning. It doesn't matter if you've been a believer for decades or you find yourself secretly hostile to the very thought that you are a bad person in God's eyes. This is a message that is true no matter if we are struggling with the exact same sins year after year after year or if we're riding a spiritual high and we're, we're experiencing this victory over our sin. No matter if we want to serve Jesus wholeheartedly or if we find ourselves and where we're just not really sure if, if we want to, to offer up control to the Lord Jesus in certain areas of our lives. That there are certain things that we're okay handing over to the lordship uh, of Jesus, and yet at the same time, there are certain areas of our lives where, where we, we don't really want to give that over to him. We don't want him to have lordship and ownership and a say in those part of our, parts of our lives. And no matter where we're at this morning, wherever on that spectrum, wherever we come into this passage this morning, the, the message is an invitation to each of us, Come experience the goodness of God. Let's walk our way through this text, consider this invitation. In this uh, chapter, we actually see that God really, he just gives this invitation twice, two different ways, slightly different ways here in our chapter. So the first is this invitation to come, and the second is an invitation to seek. Come and seek. Let's take a look at the, the first invitation, verses one through five, to come. The text starts by answering a crucial question. Who is this invitation given to? Who is it that can come? Verse 1 gives us the answer. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Who is it that is invited to come to the Lord to invite? to experience this great salvation of the Lord God, who can receive the reward of the servant from, or from chapter 53. Well, here in verse 1, we see it is those who are thirsty and poor. Those who are thirsty and poor. The invitation of the gospel is for those who are in need, and they cannot afford what they need. One of the most astounding mysteries of the gospel is, is right here. That God doesn't start with those who have their lives together. He doesn't start with those who bring a spiritual resume of their accomplishments or even of their worldly accomplishments. He starts with the broken and the destitute, those who are far from him and those who know that they are far from him. He starts with the leper who is an outcast and ostracized from the Jewish society in Mark chapter 1. 
He starts with tax collectors and sinners in Mark chapter 2. He starts with a woman who is bleeding for 13 years and no one wants anything to do with in Mark chapter 5. He starts with a Gentile woman whose daughter is demon-possessed and everyone thinks that she is beneath them in Mark chapter 7. He starts with the, ch- the children that the world has no time for in Mark chapter 10. He starts with blind Bartimaeus who everyone rebukes him because he wants to see Jesus in Mark chapter 10. He's not important enough for Jesus, and yet Jesus seeks after him anyway. There is perhaps no greater barrier to the gospel than a refusal to recognize the reality of our spiritual condition. And that's why God starts with those who are very aware of how destitute they are, how desperate they are, how broke they are. Who can come? Those who are thirsty and broke. But here's more good news from Isaiah 55. God doesn't just say come to those who are aware of their thirst for God, of their need for God and the fact that they can't pay for it. He also comes for those who are still living in the delusion of their affluence, who still are living in this mindset that they can actually achieve satisfaction in this world, that they have their lives together. Verse 2. Many of uh, says this, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? I think many of us, if we've been in the church before, we're familiar with the story that Jesus tells, the parable of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. God, uh, uh, Jesus tells this story about the heart of God by telling of two sons. One son squanders everything that his father gives him with prostitutes and lavish living. He wants nothing to do with his dad. And he wastes all of his money and he ends up broke and hungry And he comes to his senses. And in the midst of of longing for the food of pigs, he says, I'm going to go back to my dad. And astoundingly, his father welcomes him, not just as a servant, but as a son. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. He recognizes he is thirsty. He recognizes he is broken. He comes, and his father welcomes him in. It's a beautiful picture of the lavish love of God the Father for wayward sinners, but don't miss the rest of the story. The Father has another son who, for all intents and purposes, is the model son. He isn't rebellious. He is respectful. He is dutiful. But when his brother returns and he sees that his father welcomes him back as a son, he is furious. Why? Well, because at his core, he's just like his brother. He doesn't care about his dad. He just wants his dad's money, and he sees that when, his, when he sees that his dad still loves his brother in spite of everything that his brother has done, his, his heart is revealed. And we see that every single thing that he was doing, the obedience, being dutiful, being respectful to his father, staying home, every single thing that he was doing wasn't because he loved his dad. No, it was because he wanted what his dad would give 
There are many of us who can point to seasons of our lives, moments in our lives when we realized that we were thirsty and broke and we heard this invitation to come and buy and we thought it was too good to be true and yet we came anyway. And there are just as many of us here this morning, like me, like the older brother who lived a good, upright life for decades because we had deluded ourselves into thinking that we weren't like those other people and that we were good enough on our own. The Lord's invitation here in Isaiah chapter 55 breaks down such illusions. The invitation to come is for the thirsty, it is for the poor, but it is also for those who have money to spend, who are able to labor for things that really just amount to nothing. That's what we see here in verse 2. The, the Lord's invitation is for people like the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, the model religious person who has his life together and yet is still far from God. The Lord's invitation is for the scribe of Mark chapter 12 who comes to Jesus attempting to trap him, trap him but then leaves, in Jesus' own words, not far from the kingdom of God. Who is it that is invited to come? Well, it's anyone and everyone who receives the invitation. What motivation do we have for coming? Why should we come? The answer is given to us in verses 2 and 3. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here and your, here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Let's keep going in, in verse 4. Behold, I make, made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you do, did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Why is it that we should come? And notice there at the end, in verses 4 and 5, the Lord is speaking to you, which is the servant of Isaiah chapter 53, and said, people are going to run to you from every nation. So this isn't just for those who attend church or, or those who are here or, or in the context of Isaiah 55, the, the people of Israel, but it is for every nation. And what do we see here? Why is it that we should come? Because we can spend our entire lives looking elsewhere for a place that will quench our thirst and satisfy our hunger, but all of them will leave us lacking. The only place that will ultimately satisfy our search for meaning and belonging is by coming to the Lord. One of the most poignant passages, one of my favorite images of, uh, of this in the Bible is found in Jeremiah chapter 2. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. When we run elsewhere for satisfaction, we exchange pure, thirst-quenching, spirit-reviving, pure water from a flowing stream for tepid, stale, dirty water that comes from a hole in the ground. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes the problem of humanity. 
It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling all around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are too easily pleased. Why come? Because only he can satisfy. This is the invitation of these first few verses. Come to the only one who will satisfy your weary soul. Are you weary of searching? Are you weary of doing and seeking, of pursuing contentment and satisfaction? Jesus says, come. Come to the only one who will satisfy and give you rest. Augustine from the 400s once said this, I have read in Plato and Cicero many sayings, both wise and beautiful, but never the words come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isn't that just such a powerful statement? We can hear from the world wise things, beautiful things, and yet we will never hear from the world the words that we most need to hear. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Of course, if we weren't convinced that God genuinely invites all of us to come to him, hopefully we would be convinced by the fact that he issues the exact same invitation again. Verses 6 through 13, he restates his invitation. He does it in a slightly different way. First invitation in the first five verses is come, and then he transitions to seek. Focuses on what it means for us to seek the Lord. What does it mean to seek the Lord? We'll consider verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. First, notice what the end of verse 6 says. To seek God is to call upon him. And what does that mean? Well, this is a phrase that's used throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, as a way of referring to prayer. To call upon the Lord is to cry out to God in prayer. But not just any prayer, prayer that is focused on asking God to fulfill his promises. Remember what Isaiah's main concern is, the trustworthiness of God's character. And so calling out to God is praying to God, asking him to do exactly what he has promised to do in his word. It is a declaration that you believe that God is trustworthy, that he will do what he has said he will do. But what is it that God has said that he will do? That's what Isaiah 54 is all about, right? It's the promise of salvation that is accomplished by the servant in Isaiah 53. It will never be nullified. It will never be taken away from us. It's the promise that one day God will make all things right and his people will dwell with him forever. Even when the circumstances of our lives don't line up with the promises of God's word, we pray for him to bring about those promises because we believe that he is a trustworthy God. Seeking God takes place in prayer, but, but not just in prayer. Verse 7 tells us that when we seek God, we also forsake wickedness. We also forsake unrighteousness. This is the only natural response to the command of verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. 
It is a completely useless exercise for us to listen to God, but to not respond. If we would seek the Lord, then we must listen to him in verse 3. In other words, we have to know his commands that are found in his word. And then we respond to what his commands say with action, by transforming, by shaping and changing our actions and our thought life. Plain and simple, it is a call to repentance. Jesus issues the exact same call in Mark chapter 1 to anyone who would follow him. He says this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This makes a great deal of sense even without the evidence of verse 3 and verse 7, right? Seek is just another way of saying the word pursue or chase after, take my relationship with my wife. If I'm going to pursue my wife, I am going to do certain things that, that I know that she likes or, or, or enjoys and, and leave behind the things that frustrate her. If I want to deepen my relationship with her, I would take the knowledge of what she enjoys and what she does not enjoy and take that to heart and let it transform my actions. How much more then should we do that exact same thing? Those who are wicked, those who are unrighteous, according to verse 7, how, how much more should we respond to, to forsaking our ways and our thoughts that are an abomination to a holy Lord over all of creation? To seek the Lord is to pursue him in prayer. Ask him to fulfill his promises. Bring about our, uh, and then not just fulfilling his promises, but then also seeking him by increasing our knowledge of him through repentance. And just in case the answer isn't obvious as to why we should seek God, he, uh, God in, in Isaiah 55 states three reasons in verses 8 through 13. First is in verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Why is it that we should seek God? Because his ways and his thoughts are completely different than ours. I'll be honest with you. I've been a Christian for a little over half of my life. And every single time that I have heard these two verses, I have heard them to explain that God's ways are unknowable to us. Some way of saying that God's ways are mysterious, that God's ways... Are, are providential and, and the way that he works in creation, we can't fully know, especially in hard or challenging or difficult times. And that's, ex- that's certainly true. But that is not what God is talking about here when he says that, says that my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. He is in the context, he's referring back to what he says in verse 7. What does he say in verse 7? The wicked are to forsake their way. What are the unrighteous to do? They are to forsake their thoughts. Okay, now go back to verse 8. What belongs to God that is higher than ours? His thoughts and his ways. In other words, the, the invitation of the gospel includes repentance because our natural way of doing things is sinful while his natural way, his, the only way that he ever does things is holy. God is completely other than us. And because of that, we are to seek him while we still can, before it is too late. That we have to transform our ways of doing things. 
This isn't something that is natural. It is a pursuit. We seek God because he is other than us and our sinfulness. Another reason for seeking God found in verses 10 and 11 is because his word is completely dependable. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is another one of those really common passages in the Bible. I know I've used this passage as a source of encouragement for me in the midst of preaching. It's an assurance that God's word, uh, when it is preached, he will use it to do exactly what he intends for it to do. And that's, that's certainly true. But again, in the context of Isaiah 55 and, and more generally in, in Isaiah as a whole, it's a reminder that we can seek God because he's not going to let us down. That God's promises are completely trustworthy, that God doesn't make promises that he doesn't intend to keep. If God promises something in his word, then that is the surest thing in the world. There is nothing more dependable than what God promises in his word. You will not find a more reliable place to rest. You can stake your entire lives upon this. If God promises something, then he will follow through. And if God promises redemption, then you can be sure that he's never going to say, eh, never mind. God's promises are completely dependable because his word is completely dependable. That's a little bit of what is in view in verses 12 and 13, the final reason. Seek God because of the joy that awaits us. We seek, joy because of the, uh, seek God because of the joy that awaits us. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. What does the Lord promise in his word for those who would seek him? He promises joy. He promises peace. He promises that all of creation will flourish in perfection. We seek the Lord because he keeps his promises. And he promises joy. Isaiah 55, one of the most important invitations that we could ever receive. Really the most important invitation that we could ever receive. It is an invitation to come. And experience the goodness of God. And it is an invitation that is addressed to you. Whether it is the first time or the millionth time, God invites you to draw near. To come and buy. Even though you're broke, to come in faith. You have heard as we see in verse 3, how will you respond? One of the most astounding parts of this passage to me is found in the connection between verses 7 and 8. And I've already kind of mentioned this connection between these verses that, that God's thoughts are above our thoughts and his ways are above our ways. 
is that we trend toward evil and yet God is utterly holy. And his way is, is so different than, than ours that it's surprising. It's surprising to us. But note the very end of verse 7. Not just that our ways are wicked, that our thoughts are wicked, but notice what he says in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You see, here's what's so surprising about the, the thoughts and the ways of God. It's not so much that there is this infinite gap between our wicked ways and thoughts and the holy thoughts and holy ways of God. That's not the, the primarily, or that's not the primary thing that's surprising. What's the most surprising is God's response to that gap. I think a lot of times we have a tendency to look at this invitation of the gospel in a way that's something like this. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and God will have compassion on him, but will give him a short leash or will put him on probation. The shocking part about the difference of God's ways and thoughts and our ways and thoughts is that he is other than us, yes, but also that he is so utterly other that he abundantly pardons us when we come to him. Over the last several weeks, I've been reading this book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. It's, it's just been really good. And he points out the surprising nature of the Lord's invitations to sinners like me and you. And I just, as we close, I just want to read this. It's based off of, it's in, it's, uh, Explaining Isaiah 55, verse 7 and 8. What is God saying? He is telling us that we cannot view his expressions of his mercy with our old eyes. Our very view of God must change. What would we say to a seven-year-old who, upon being given a birthday gift by his loving father, immediately scrambles to reach for his piggy bank to try to pay his dad back? How painful to a father's heart. That child needs to change his very view of who his father is and what his father delights to do. The natural flow of the fallen human heart is toward reciprocity, tip for tat, payback, equanimity, balancing the scales. So God tells us in plain terms how tiny our natural views of his heart are. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And not because we're just a few degrees off. No. As high as the heavens are above the earth, a Hebrew way of expressing spatial infinitude, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's love for you isn't begrudging. His compassion for you isn't qualified. This invitation isn't one to a short leash 
and you having to constantly look over your shoulder, be on your God, it is one to come and experience the goodness of God in all of its fullness to increasingly see that God is the one who truly delights to bring salvation to people like us, that God delights to save. Isaiah 49. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Come, experience the goodness of God. Let's pray. Lord, I think all too often we our our view of you is because our ways are not your ways, our thoughts are not your thoughts. I think our our view of you can be more influenced on the way that we view the world and this idea of reciprocity than on the God who abundantly pardons. Help us to have our view of you transformed by Scripture and that we would delight to come to you, to seek you, to experience the goodness of God because that's exactly who you are. Help each and every one of us this morning, Lord. No matter where we are, far from you or seemingly close to you, that we would come, that we would buy without money because you offer to us freely, and that we would experience your goodness in its fullness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.